and I sent him the project over the weekend, um, like on a probably on a Friday, and said, could you do this for $300? And he wrote back to me and said, yeah, I think so. By Monday, I had a completed project. And this was, you know, I, was, I wasn't selling this for big bucks. I was selling this for $1,000. But it came into my mind, like I quoted 1000 My cost was 300 It was built in three days. The client is happy. And I'm going to get $300 a year for hosting. What's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Karshavsky, and welcome to episode 35 of That Remote Show, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dustin Overbeck, the founder and CEO of townweb.com, which builds easy-to-use websites for municipalities. Now, the reason why I want to have Dustin on the show is that over the last decade, he has built a type of business called a productized service. For you guys out there that don't know what that is, it's a sort of business that allows you to sell a service, like web development in Dustin's case, more or less like a product. This allows it to be easier to scale, more profitable, and more easily automated. And in this episode, Dustin and I discussed the early days of TownWeb and how he found his niche, which, like I mentioned, is building websites for small to medium-sized U.S. municipalities. We talked about what part location arbitrage and remote work have played in building the business, and Dustin even shared some of his top tips for hiring great remote workers, who, for those of you out there who have tried to hire remote before, you know it's not the easiest thing in the world, and Dustin has a really interesting process that he's figured out for that. If you're someone currently running a service-based business who wants to implement more systems and automate your business so it continues to run smoothly without your constant input, this is an episode you don't want to miss. Before we jump into this interview, make sure you hit that subscribe button. We have a lot of exciting interviews coming up, and that way you will make sure that you never miss a new episode. All right, you guys, let's dive into this week's interview with Dustin Overbeck from townweb.com. All right, well, Dustin, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for coming by. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So before we hit record, um, we were talking about the fact that you live in Romania and I actually just went to Romania for the first time this past summer. And the number one thing I got to ask you about, man, are the roads. <laughs> How do you drive on these Romanian roads? Because I thought I would be cool because I've driven in Bulgaria a bunch of times. But when I entered Romania, I lost my mind. So I, how, how are you dealing with the driving over there? <laughs> Actually, I don't drive at all. Uh, that's the thing. I, I rely on Uber a lot. I have a couple of friends that have cars that kind of work also part-time as Uber drivers or full-time as Uber drivers, and I just send them a message when I want to go somewhere. But other than that, I rely a lot on public transportation. I take trains if I want to go to Bucharest, and I got you know three hours of time. But uh, for the most part, I'm well. I actually, I live in downtown in Brasov, which is in central Transylvania. So I just walk everywhere. Sometimes I'll take a a bus. Um, but one thing crazy that I did after my um, probably fourth year of living here, I decided to take flight lessons. So I now have my private pilot's license living here in uh, Romania. 
And the other pilots that I see at the this little podunk airport, it's just a grass strip, they laugh at me because I'm the only guy that shows up by Uber or has somebody have to drive me there, but yet I can fly a plane all around. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't like so the roads you, at all. Yeah, the I was absolutely bewildered. Like, I, I, I was like, oh, we'll be fine. You know, I've driven Eastern Europe before. And the moment we crossed the border into Romania, I was just like, what is this? It was just, it was a mess. So are you, if you have your pilot's license, are you able to then like fly down to Bucharest like when you want to? Or like, are you not at that level yet? Yeah, technically I could fly internationally all across uh, the European Union. Um, I don't think I have an airplane available to use because I have asked about it. And they're like, well, you know... Because I, ideally, I'd like to take a, a weekend trip. Because right mm-hmm. now, from where I live, to go to another well-known city, Cluj, it's about a seven, eight-hour uh, hour ride in a bu- in, uh, sorry in a in a train. It's like seven hours in a train. So to get there by flying is probably just like an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And I've kind of asked about it, and they're like, "Well, look, the airplane that we have is a training aircraft. It's you know we need it to be in the air for people to use it. You can't just really take it for the weekend because we you know most people are taking their lessons in it over the weekend. So ideally, I'd like to go in with a couple other people and get an airplane, maybe a two seater or a four seater, and then just kind of travel when and where I want. But until that point, uh, yeah. It's not really possible. I just do little flights around the city, do some tours for people, have them take pictures of the of there's we can go to Brand Castle, it's not too far away, Dracula's Castle, everybody kinda knows that. And some other areas where you see some mountains and you see the old city center and things like that. Yeah, uh that would be the ultimate baller move, I think, is like when you have an airplane and you <laughs> can just kinda like pop over to like Paris or something like that for you know, we'll just we'll just take the plane, you know. That's the yeah, <laughs> that's the doable. ultimate move. It's doable. <laughs> yeah, they're really cause I was surprised. I mean, they're expensive, right? Like we're talking about like like hundred plus thousand dollars for a, a plane, but they're not like that's not like that crazy expensive, right? Or am I off on the numbers? Well, you can get a small airplane a Cessna 150 for probably 25,000 euros. It's an oh, older wow. one. They go faster than a car. And granted, you do have the line of flight. So you don't have to like go through the windy roads. You can fly over mountains and things like that. But you know they're kind of pigs in the air is how I've been told what they are. And we're flying a Cessna 172, which is a four-seater. And it can probably go on a good day, maybe in miles, probably close to 140 miles an hour. I'm guessing, but it's not that super fast anyways. So, but a decent right. plane that's going to go, that's going to clip around at more than 200 miles an hour, uh, it's probably going to cost more than a hundred K. But if you can find three other people who want to go in with you on it, your total cost of ownership is one fourth of that. You just pay yeah. for the the fuel. Yeah. I, I think that's a definitely a really good, good move once you get there i'm terrified of flying myself uh i've gotten more comfortable now that i've been flying around uh for such a long time but that's still one of those things where some people like i thought i wanted to learn how to fly so that i would get over my fear and then a friend of mine who's a pilot uh his name's ian hoyt he's been on the on the podcast before he was like that might not be that good of an idea because then you'll be flying and you're going to realize the pilot doesn't 
isn't that good and it's sometimes it's better for you like not to know what's going on than like <laughs> than to know so ignorance um, is bliss yes yeah exactly so before you were living in romania and flying planes and and that kind of stuff you grew up in wisconsin correct yes so how did you because from what i know you got started building small like you started building websites for small businesses in the 90s correct yes can you take me back to that time and just how did you get involved in tech and how did you start building websites for um small companies well i was always kind of interested in technology um you know, i'm like 45 or so years old now so my first computer was the apple II. And that was like in the early 80s. So I, w- I actually, I don't know why, but my mom got me one of those computers, which cost as much as, a, much as a car back then. And I had one even before my school had one. So I was kind of in the know of what was going on. And then when the, the internet came out, I think I had access to it um, in 1995 or 96, where we had dial-up access. I was just enamored. I thought, wow, this is really in- interesting. I was... I totally wanted to figure out how to build a website, how to get a domain name, how to do all of that. It just seemed so interesting to me. So I was known in my local area as one of the guys who could build websites. Now there's like many dozens of people who could do that in my local area, but it was a town of 10,000 people. So I just started building websites for people and I found out that the need was actually for hosting too because there are other companies that could do that. But if I could buy the hosting in bulk and then sell it, for a slightly premium price, I could have recurring income through the web hosting. So for the longest time, my business idea was to do website design, but also sell web hosting with it. And that's something that I've been doing ever since the late late 90s, I guess. And uh, I kind of fell into the municipal business by accident because at the time, um, my uncle was the town chairman for a small town where I grew up at. And he was kind of ahead of the curve. It was like probably 2000, 2001. He asked if I could, you know, put a proposal together for a municipal website. And I did, but I built it in a way that wasn't using FTP or um, HTML coding. It was built in a way that's like, kind of like a a very, very basic version of WordPress. It was a CMS, kind of, Mm -hmm. something that was home built. And um, that was the start of, how I kind of started Town Web, and that was kind of the start of how I came to Romania because the programmer I used was some guy I found on 2000 or 2001 through some internet forum that happened to be from Romania. This all I can, this sounds normal to me, but I can just imagine in 2000 just how sketchy this sounded. Like, this must have been very out there. Like, what? So, first of all, when you say that you got into the municipality business, what exactly does that mean? Like, what sort of people are your clients through TownWeb now? Well, right now, it's it's mainly any municipality that's probably less than a population of 20, 25,000 that can use our services. Um, but back in the day, it was just a small town of 2,000, 2,500 people that needed a website so they can post information to make it transparent so that there was transparency of what was happening within the municipality. And every month, they only meet once a month, the town board would have some agendas to post and meeting minutes to post from the previous month. So I created a basic CMS that had an admin section 
for the clerk to log in, upload the meeting minutes, and upload the meeting, uh, the next month's agenda. And uh, we also provided free support. We, it was me at the beginning, would provide free support. So anytime they wanted additional documents uploaded or a PDF of their ordinances or some information about elections, I would just go ahead and add that content to the webpage and everything was easy for them. So essentially you are, you almost built, like you said, like a, almost like a blogging infrastructure for these towns so that they could post that to the people who live in the towns. And there was nobody else doing that at that time. Is that correct? Yeah. Back in the day, we, all the websites that were designed was pretty much called a static website. And the ones that were connected with a backend database were called dynamically driven websites. So now everybody talks about what back then was called dynamic driven is now a CMS, a content management system. So yeah, I just called it a dynamic website design. So we basically built it using the LAMP technology, which was Linux, Apache, MySQL, and uh, PHP. And it was just a very, very basic database in the back end that allowed files to be uploaded through the system using PHP and stored onto a server. So it's, it's probably something that somebody could build in a weekend now, um, just with simple PHP knowledge. Or you can have a WordPress, you know, understanding of how to use WordPress, and you can probably build it in a couple of hours, like a very basic version of it. Of course, mm-hmm. now we are relying on WordPress, but we have a highly customized version of WordPress. We've got our own plugins that have been um, built in-house to make certain functions of what a municipal clerk needs to do. We make it very easy. And we've actually linked in with uh, WordPress's API, so we have a custom dashboard. So when somebody logs in, it doesn't look WordPressy at all. It looks like something that, oh, you just click here and upload it. Oh, that's easy. So now when I do demos for new potential customers, I show them how their new website would look. And every one of them says, it's like, wow, that, 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 I can figure that out. And it's an mm-hmm. easy sell. So how did you, to take you back to the beginning again, how did you learn all of this? You said your mom got you a computer. But I'm so fascinated with, like, did you go to school to learn this? Because I know now I can pull up YouTube and learn just about anything, and it will still be tough. Like, the more, like, the domain hosting stuff still definitely, I I still bang my head against the wall. Um, But how did you figure it out at the time? Did you just do it on your own somehow, or did you go to school to to learn it? Yeah, when I was in college in the late 90s, they didn't really have internet courses per se i mean some i think taught some internet html courses but in the but in the beginning i was just doing uh i bought a book i bought a book about html there weren't a lot of online resources at that time google didn't even exist i didn't think it started until like 1998 so Mm -hmm. i was i was using um other search engines back then but a lot of it was just self-taught it wasn't i would say necessarily hard because they're back in the day you would connect to your local internet service provider. And it was kind of like a modified version of what a BBS was, a bulletin board system. So if you've ever used the internet or what is kind of the internet back before the internet really existed in mainstream, you would dial into another computer location and you would have BBS. You'd do everything through text. You'd enter in chat rooms and you'd um, post questions about certain things. And that's kind of what the early internet was, you would have different web forums, mostly text-based, and you would ask questions like, hey, 
what is a DNS or how do I buy a domain name? Back then, domain names were expensive. They were seventy dollars uh, per year, and I think you had to do a two-year contract, or maybe it was seventy dollars for the first two years because there's only one provider of those domain names. And then they, it was called Internic, and then they uh, separated. It was um, what's it called? Not consolidated, but the opposite of mm-hmm. uh, like split up by the government, essentially. Yeah, I think that's what was done. Mm-hmm. And so all these other places like Name.com or GoDaddy were able to be also official registrars of domain names. Then the prices went way down. But um, yeah, in the early days, it was just kind of doing a lot of text searches online. But a lot of the stuff online was all text stuff. So, so you learn how to build websites, and then you started selling hosting. How like how old are you at this point? And is this after school that you started kind of like building these municipality websites, or was it like while you were still in college? Yeah, while I was in college, I worked for the chancellor's office at University of Wisconsin Stevens Point, and would build their websites for the chancellor's office and for some other departments and different events. And so that was, I mean, that was very early. We, I don't even think we were using Photoshop. We were using PaintShop Pro and like maybe uh, a beta version of Microsoft front page. Otherwise, we were using stuff like maybe Dreamweaver um, back when it was with Macromedia before it was part of Adobe. <laughs> And uh, later on, I started just doing it as a hobby because I had a I had a real job. I was working for a couple of other companies, and I was just doing website doing design them? just for fun. Um, well, my first year out of college, I was teaching English in Italy, and so I did that for a full year. And because um, what I did in college was to learn foreign languages. I don't know. I didn't want to be a teacher, but I studied. I did a four year degree of uh, Spanish, German, and international studies. So my goal was just to do something international. And uh, so the first job I got was really just working in Italy for a year teaching English. And then after I came back to the United States, I found a job in my hometown because they needed somebody who knew Spanish. And it was a company, it was an engineering company, and they were doing a lot of um, uh, equipment installs in Mexico. So I would go to some of the sales meetings, I'd go to some of the installations, um, coordinate the translations and things like that, and but in the in my spare time, I was I had my computer and was making websites, and then two thousand one came around. I was asked to build a website for a municipality. The interesting thing about that project is I knew that it had to be built using a database, and I was very familiar with Microsoft Access because I was using Microsoft Access inside of the company that I was working at but I didn't know how to make it web-based. And doing a lot of research, there's a lot of forums that said, don't use Microsoft Access for for internet because it's not built for that. You should use something open source. I didn't know what open source was, but everything was pointing to um, MySQL. So I went on internet forums knowing that I needed it to be built using certain technology, but I didn't know how to do it, and I took a chance. Actually, I... I posted a project a while earlier for making a real estate website uh, for somebody in my hometown, and I posted in a forum. I had people all over the world bidding on the project, and I ended up hiring a guy in Minnesota because it was close by, and he had done another similar project. But one of the guys who um, applied for that project was from Romania, and he was out of the, I don't know, dozens of people who contacted me, 
he was the only one that did a follow-up. He asked and said, hey, about that real estate project, did you hire somebody? And I said, yeah, I did. Um, I looked at your bid, but I thought it was a little high. Uh, I ended up hiring somebody else, you know, locally. And he says, well, you know, I'm from Romania. Our, our currency is a lot different from your currency. How about this? If you have another project in the future, you tell me what you think it's worth to you, and I'll let you know if I can do it, yes or no. I'm like, cool. Well, that's when this new project came out for um, a municipality in my hometown. And I put together uh, kind of like... Um, an overview of what I wanted the look and design to be like. I actually went in and, and did the database schema. Like I need these fields and it has to be this field type. You know, just thinking this is stuff I had to provide. I probably didn't because he could figure it out. He was a database guy. And I sent him the project over the weekend, um, like on a probably on a Friday, and said, could you do this for $300? And he wrote back to me and said, yeah, I think so. By Monday, I had a completed project. And this was, you know, I, was, I wasn't selling this for big bucks. I was selling this for $1,000. But it came into my mind, like, I quoted 1000 My cost was 300 It was built in three days. The client is happy. And I'm going to get $300 a year for hosting. I was just going to charge 25 bucks a month. And there were a few tweaks here and there with the client that they wanted some changes on. But it was done for $300. I went to uh, Western Union because PayPal, I don't think, existed back then. And would wire transfer um, or, or whatever it's called, um, send money via Western Union to Romania. And and I thought, wow, this is this is great. The thing is, is I had a full-time job, so my focus was on on that. That was what was keeping me busy. If I didn't have that, I probably would have been entrepreneurial enough to say, I wonder if there's a couple other hundred municipalities that need something very similar. But I was just distracted because at that time I was taking flight lessons and you know, buying a house, whatever. I was just doing what people do when they're working in the corporate world. So you essentially figured out, not figured out, but like discovered what we now call like geo-arbitrage pretty early on. Like you were like, wow, this guy in Romania did this awesome job for 300 bucks that have cost way more here this is a great resource, right? That's that's pretty cool that you figured it out that early on. Um, so, at, so because I knew that this did eventually grow and like you said, you got a few more municipalities, but I also know that at one point you decided to take on, you decided to get a new job in LA, correct? Yes. So at what, like, at what size was your business or at this point your side hustle before you left for LA? Oh, hmm. So I was doing website design since like the late 90s. Before I went to LA, I was actually um, in graduate school because the idea was to work for a tech startup or something like that out mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley. So I went and did my master's of business administration degree. Um, that actually eventually brought me to China. I was working for a Chinese power tool company one of four foreign employees working there and it was really difficult being a foreigner working inside of a Chinese company in China and so I did that for a full year and then I went back and I finished my master's degree so I got my MBA and I was um, in the Philippines at the time my wife is from the Philippines we weren't married at the time but we were dating I went um, to visit her and I remember I was sitting on the beach sending out um, promotional material, basically flyers, to other municipalities because I thought there's probably a couple other hundred municipalities in Wisconsin. 
not knowing there's close to 2,000. Uh, but I got a list and I sent out a three-page brochure um, to them. And while I was in the Philippines, I was getting some people emailing back interested in a website. And this was back in 2007. At the same time, I applied for a job working for a really cool-sounding startup in L.A. And I was asked to interview for that, that job. I was already back in the U.S. because I had been in the Philippines for a couple of months, had to go back to the U.S., and uh, interviewed for the job, was accepted, and I moved out to L.A. because I thought this was going to be a really good career move. It wasn't going to pay a ton of money necessarily. It was actually a little bit um, less in pay from the job that I had working in China, but they were going to offer stock options. And I thought, wow, this is great. I I'm hungry for these stock options. I want to work for a tech startup. This is cool. Not bad for a Wisconsin boy living in L.A., working for a tech startup. It's going to be a millionaire soon because of these stock options are going to go through the roof. And this is 2007. So, I, something I'm trying to understand, I think people listening will be curious as well, is you're living in the Philippines. You said that you'd been there for a couple of months. You're sending out brochures to municipalities to build websites for them. And obviously something's clicking because you're getting responses, right? The worst thing is to send those out and not to have anybody say anything. At which point I would understand you looking at job opportunities, right? Because like, hey, I'm sending all this stuff out. Nobody's getting back to me. Why do you, why are you looking for jobs if you're sending out brochures and you're actually getting like people reaching out saying that they need your services? I think um, you're asking that question because you're probably from a different generation from me. I think a lot of people who are kind of my age, if they're going to go out and get a four-year degree, maybe they'll get a couple of years extra of work experience, and then they'll do their master's degree. And when you enter business school, the idea is to uh, to exit business school and walk into a job that's going to give you a six-figure salary. And that was the mindset. And I thought that's what I should do. Not many people will go and pay the amount of money it is to go to a, um, um, a business school to go into business themselves. Why not just start the business yourself? Now you talk to anybody in 2020, 2019, 20, whatever it is, and uh, give them advice of what they should do. They will even say, don't even get a four-year degree. Just start your job. Just try. Try to fail or try to win. And if it does fail, you can always go back to school. And then you can always go into debt. But before you go into debt, at least start a business and try to start a business without going too much in debt. But that wasn't the thought back then. Very few people did that because at that time, um, you know, the iPhone wasn't even out. Um, Wi-Fi wasn't very common. And um, things like Skype didn't really exist. It was just coming to fruition. So the mindset was for me after business school to get a six-figure salary at a you know a startup or uh, an established company. I didn't expect that I would be an entrepreneur by starting my own business. I always thought I would do it someday, I guess, because I was always you know interested in running my own business. But um, it wasn't until working for that startup in LA and being asked to resign in the first month that I thought, <laughs> screw that, I'm not going to work for anybody ever again. I'm going to do my own thing. And that was the big drive. Usually when you have a cushy so you job, got, you're happy with everything. You got let go after 30 days, after a month? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a real hit to my self-esteem because prior to that, I had never failed in the sense of working for, in, in, in a, 
I guess, a business sense in a career standpoint because I had always felt like I was leading in what I was doing. When I was working at that techno- at that uh, engineering company, I was like the guy to do some stuff in, in Spanish. I was the guy to transfer things and do things digitally, to build stuff with um, Microsoft Access. Whenever I would do stuff, people would be like, ah, I understand what you're doing. I'm going to trust Dustin. When I was working for another company before I went to China, people depended on me because they knew whatever I said was probably correct, that they could trust it was the right thing. But when I went out to that company in L.A., I wasn't yet familiar. My feet were still wet working in that type of environment. And the funny thing is, is when I was told that, you know, I should probably resign, they came to me and said, you know, you're from Wisconsin. You don't really understand how the startup world works. And I thought that was such a backhanded slap. Um, I haven't set foot in California after that. I'm just, I'm kind of anti-California with the whole startup culture and, well, this is how we do things out here. And I kind of feel like I got a chip on my shoulder. Like, I can do better, I think, running my own thing. And I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. I don't have to do it to appease some capital or whatever it is, um, venture capital investors. And I remember getting into work. And I lived like downtown L.A., right near the La Brea tar pits, whatever they're called. Walking distance right to the office, getting there. Getting there, getting into work early and finding out like, oh, there's a board meeting happening in two hours. We need to run, we need you to run all these reports. I'm like, well, these reports take like five hours to run. Like, <laughs> like there's, no, there's no advance notice? Well, this is just how things work here. Like, there's just, it felt like there was no organization. Now, maybe that is the startup culture, but they had also gotten, I think, close to $60 million of venture capital. And then they were eventually sued by the lending companies because of uh, pump and dump schemes. And I don't know if anybody ever came out of that clean, but... I was just going to ask uh, if they're still around, but it sounds like no, uh, you got not. the better end of the deal on that one. The name so, of the company was called Spot Runner. They were making... They were basically um, the AdSense, or what was it called? The, the Google AdWords for TV commercials. The two guys who started the company had the idea, actually built the idea for um, the Democratic Party so that when they wanted to come up with these um, these TV commercials, they could do these buys across so many different um, mm. markets. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of like Google, um, what's it called? Yeah, the ad network. Google ads, yeah, like the Google yeah. ad network. And so everybody who was looking at this company is like, you're going to be bought up by Google because they already have the advertising. You guys have the ability of an online thing to create these templated versions of commercials and sell them all over. But the thing is, is I had access to all the financials, and when I was looking at everything, it just didn't make sense. They were having me look at data data from salesforce.com, which the probability of that data is based on how the salesperson thinks it's going to sell. So, of course, salesperson, salespeople are very um, optimistic that they're going to close this order. But when looking at all the sales data, it was like very little sales. They had like dozens and dozens of salespeople, and they had one guy that was doing national accounts. And he sold to like um, uh, some national jewelry chain, uh, diamond, uh, sell diamonds or something. And then I think they were selling to HubSpot. And those two accounts accounted for millions of dollars of ad buys, and uh, these 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 dozens of people were accounting like maybe fifty thousand. 
it was a complete night and day difference. And they were looking for me for answers. Like, well, what about this? What? And I'm just looking at the data. I'm like, I don't know if I understand the data, but there's one guy who's fueling the growth of the company. I mean, they're bleeding a lot, but you know, the early days, that was where the growth was from. Um, but the, the premise of the business is that all these small mom and pop shops would send would, would spend money and that would be the growth driver. In fact, it was mm-hmm. the opposite. It was one sales guy selling to two national accounts and that was the growth driver. Yeah, I think that's the issue with these like funded startups is that a lot of times they become way too bloated like without reason yet. Like I, that's why I really like bootstrap stuff like what you're doing because you're getting out there, you're getting your hands dirty, you're testing, you're keeping small, you know, you're doing these things. You're not like, oh, great, like there's this person who thinks our idea is great, so here's $10 million and like let's hire a bunch of people and buy some ping pong tables and beanbag chairs and, you know, we're, we're killing it now. Um, so while you were in LA and you were working for this company, you know, even for the short stint that you were, were did you still have, were you still building the websites for the municipalities or had you completely put that to the side when you moved out to LA? When I was out there, I, I actually had other projects that I could have worked on, but I didn't. I had my current customer list. Uh, well, here's an interesting story about that because I remember I was in LA and I got a couple of calls from current customers saying that their website was down. And I started looking at, you know, I had probably a couple of dozen customers at the time and I was looking at all the website addresses and they were not reachable. I had a, a server that was co-located at my local ISP. And then I looked at his website and, and the ISP's website was also down. And I'm like, what is going on? Like everything is down? Like this is a big deal for me. I remember sweating thinking all these customers are relying on the websites that I'm providing. And a couple of them were, were municipalities and a bunch of other um, businesses. Well, it turns out that there was a farmer plowing his field and he severed the fiber optic cable in this little area going to Door County, Wisconsin, where I'm from, which is like um, four hours straight north of Chicago. And I thought, this is terrible. I'm like small town here. Like a farmer could affect my business because he just <laughs> severed the fiber optic cable. It's going to take a weekend to fix. So what ended up happening is is when I left the company and decided to go into business myself, I got a loan. And I thought, I'm going to go with Rackspace because Rackspace was the most well-known managed hosting company at the time and is probably still very well-respected. I'm still with Rackspace, actually. So I decided to to take the money and plop it into managed hosting in a place that had data redundancy and, you know, multiple layers of uh, security to prevent problems like that from ever happening again. So how much, do you mind me asking, like what were you doing in terms of income while you were in LA and you kind of had these other jobs? Like what was the your little, like the side hustle of doing these hosting and the websites? Like what sort of revenue was that producing per month, for example? Well, I didn't do it per month because I would sell hosting once per year mm. and do mm-hmm. annual plans, but... It wasn't much. It was probably like five to six thousand dollars a year. It was just enough money to have fun doing it, knowing I could buy a new computer every year or two if I wanted to. I had all the little gadgets back then. Um, read write CD ROMs, you know, were expensive, like four hundred bucks. I remember being able to buy one of those. Um, I had an iPod, Generation One, that was like six hundred dollars. <laughs> right. So, 
yeah, it was. Uh, it wasn't huge money, but it was like it, it paid. It paid the bills. It allowed me to um, buy my technology, buy the cool stuff that I wanted. So you 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 decided you're not getting another job. You're like, screw this. I'm done with that. I'm going to run my own business. So you take out a loan. Like, did you get it from like the bank, family, and friends? Yeah, I did what they call three F financing: family, mm-hmm. friends, and fools. And so I <laughs> I got a loan of twenty five thousand dollars, basically from. Um, part of it from my mother, part of it from a cousin, and part of it from mm-hmm. a fool, <laughs> a guy that I used to work with that was working at that engineering company. Um, and I, and this is, um, yeah, this is the summer of 2007. And basically, I took that money, bought a new laptop, got a new Mac, and uh, signed a long-term contract with Rackspace. It was going to cost me $400 a month to have a dedicated server with them, knowing that I'm going to fill that thing up as quickly as possible to make money off of it. And then I took a chunk of the money to pay the programmer to develop like a basic CMS service so that we don't have to visit the project's onesie-twosie. It was more like a way where we can more quickly roll out a new website and have a system behind it. And um, and part of it was to live off of for a while. And I moved out to the Philippines because at that time I was more serious with my girlfriend and... Uh, Worked from a small place that had a Wi-Fi connection um, where it would get disrupted when it would rain too much or it was too windy and the connection would just go out. So 2007, you take out a loan, you start this, you know, you kind of get serious with the business, but we kind of all know what's coming down the road here in a year or two. How did, you know, the financial crisis like, you know, you had just started this new business. Like, what happened when the financial crisis hit? Actually, before the financial crisis hit, I made a promise to myself that I would not, because I had still just gotten my MBA six months prior, and I made a promise to myself that I would not look at any career pages on any website for a full year. I really wanted to focus, like, I want to get this to have traction. And my business plan was to do like five websites a month. And prior to that, I was doing like five websites a year. Like, how, how mm-hmm. can I 10x this? So we'll see. So luckily enough, I got connected with uh, an organization. Well, back up a little bit. I had sent out enough uh, postcards or brochures or whatever to get enough customers interested in what I was offering. And around the same time, one of those new customers had sent me a, an email and said, did you hear about this guy? in uh, Wisconsin talking about websites for municipalities. And I'm like, no, I've, I, I don't know what, what you're talking about. And he, I think he scanned in all these pages. It was like a five, six page document. And back then it was kind of a big deal to do a scanning because each docu- each page was like five megabytes in size. And so I got a, this email with all these, um, these pages from an organization that was uh, Wisconsin Towns Association, which was a lobby group for municipalities in the state of Wisconsin. And there's this gentleman who had written an article that all municipalities, this was back in 2007, should get a website. Here's the content that should be on a website. And I thought, this is a guy I need to talk to because at the time I had um, maybe about a dozen or so municipalities in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So I called him up and we talked for a long time. And I heard he contacted each of those municipal customers of mine and asked what it was like to do business with me. And they all had good things to say. And I got invited to go with this organization, the WTA, to go all around the state to talk about 
websites because this is still at a point where a lot of places are still on dial-up. And um, so I wasn't there to sell websites. I was there to sell the idea that the technology exists and this is something that they might want to consider to have transparency. And it wasn't just me presenting. There's several other people from the state or from the procurement services or people talking about insurance. I was just one of the guys that would talk for like 20, 40 minutes about websites. But that got my name out there. So I was able to get several dozen more people interested in website design. And then fast forward a year later, um, the financial crisis hits. And I was worried because it was around the same time that my student loans were coming due uh, <laughs> from my, my business degree. And I also signed a long-term contract with hosting. So I knew I had to sell X amount of websites to just break even. And the interesting thing about this is I was already living in the Philippines part-time. My wife already had a house. Well, by then, she was at that time, she was still my girlfriend. But um, she had a place for I, where I could stay, live with her. And our expenses weren't that much. It was basically just food and um, a little bit for transportation and the internet service. The big expense was my hosting. <laughs> you know, it was just $400 <laughs> a month. And, you know, a couple hundred dollars here and there for the programmer. But I remember by the time that came out, I had reached, I think I had to do like 79 total customers to be at break even where my expenses were paid for, where I didn't have to always be in the red. I was actually in the black. I still had credit card debt. I still had that loan that was due. And then when I could really feel the pressure with a financial crisis, what I did is I um, started offering a big special. So I would go to these these conferences where other municipal um, municipalities would be at. And I offered something cutthroat because in the beginning it was $1,000 for a website, $300 a year for hosting. And when the financial crisis hit, I said, it's, I think, $299 for a website plus hosting if you sign a three-year contract. And so I had a whole ton of people say, you know what, for $600, this is a good deal. And when I looked at my finances from that year, I had um, a large amount of, um, of revenue coming from the first six months. And I had two or three times as many customers at the last part, but it was like the same amount of revenue, <laughs> a lot more work. But, uh, that was, I, I needed cash flow, and that was the way I, I knew I had to adjust. I knew I had to lower the price to, um, <clears throat> increase the demand, just common economics and then, luckily, I did have enough people signing up, but then I remember in um, that following quarter, I had like 30, 40 projects to work on, and I thought, this is, this is hard. How do I do all these projects on my own? It was difficult. That's when I discovered Upwork. At the time, it was called Odesk, and that's mm -hmm. when I really started outsourcing. When I needed a, a more assistance, I found somebody, because I thought, hey, I'm living in the Philippines part-time. Why don't I find somebody in the Philippines? Because there is this labor arbitrage. And I could have that person. I would find somebody who used to work at a call center, somebody who was used to dealing with customers, somebody who has a good accent, somebody who's going to be a little technical. And that's what I did. My first, my first hires were from the Philippines to help out with that. So what were those hires doing? Like, were they, because you said you were hiring people from call centers. Were those people, like, were you hiring them on to do... Um, like kind of like customer support or or was your system at this point with like building the websites and setting everything up 
so streamlined that you could just plug anybody into it. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was very streamlined, not to what we have now. Um, but back in the day, it was uh, somebody to call current customers and get their content, to ask what type of pages they want to have on their website, to receive the files, to read the, receive the PDFs and, and other documents. Um, this is early on. A lot of stuff wasn't even electronic back then. I would have different customers mail me like four pounds of documents for me to scan in because I was providing free scanning. So we would take their book of ordinances, scan them in, separate them based on chapter, and then upload them to the website for them. So the first hire was basically there to work with other customers to get their content and to kind of help with the build. I think I was doing the building because I had to do some technical stuff in the back end with the database and everything. Um, But we didn't hire support people for the longest time. I was doing support because I felt like I'm the face of the business. I'm the one that has to be the one answering these phone calls and answering the emails. It's not that way anymore because now we have a dedicated support team to do everything and they know they could probably answer the tickets way faster than I could. So you get through the financial crisis. When does the moment come where you're kind of like, I think I've made it. Like things are going well. I feel like I've made it. Like when did that moment come? I don't know if it has come. I was kind of waiting for that answer because I think that's a very entrepreneurial answer where like no matter how many things you've done amazingly, it's always like, I don't think I've quite made it yet. You can have a good year. Like I had a good year and then I started taking flight lessons and then the next year was (laughs) terrible because I had the wrong pricing and then a big kind of uh, this, this WTA, this organization I was telling you about, they endorsed another company over mine, a company that had never built a single municipal website they entered a deal with them, probably paid them a lot of money, paid these annual royalty fees for every new customer they signed up, and they were marketing directly against me, against my company. Mm-hmm. They actually posted stuff in such a way, making it sound like uh, verbatim, unlike another company, we don't hire people from former Soviet bloc countries. Because wow. I had some people from Eastern Europe or Serbia doing work for me, and I thought, wow, that was... That was like a cheap shot because any big company, any company that's growing has or leverages talent from overseas, whether it's for customer Mm -hmm. support or billing or back-end office support. And it was at that point I thought, you know what, maybe I have too much customer-facing, too many people um, outside of Wisconsin that were customer-facing. Like maybe I have to look at changing this. So it it was that kind of competition that made me think that I should kind of changed the business structure. And one way I helped, I got to think through this is I was working with a business coach. And it was a really good program to help me. It was called Unbreak Your Business um, because there's a lot of stuff that was broken in the business. We weren't doing project management in a very efficient way. We weren't doing marketing in a very efficient way. It was kind of a lot of loosey-goosey stuff because as you do things, you just naturally slowly improve upon it. And it wasn't until I did something, it's like, you know what? I really have to unbreak what I've done and do something different. And that's what I needed to do is change things a little bit more drastically. And that has fueled the fire. And I would say 2019 has been a very good year. I'm very optimistic for 2020 because we have such a good team hired that uh, I feel like, you know, it'll only be maybe two or three more years till we hit the million dollar a year mark. 
but then revenue shouldn't be the big driver. It should be profitability. So now I'm looking mm. at how do, we, how do we keep profit instead of just go after the big, big numbers. So how big is your team now, you know, going into 2020? And what does life look like as opposed to, you know, back in 2007? Like what has changed? Oh, man, so much has changed. I would say back in 2007, it was me dealing with all customers, handling sales, project management, support, graphics designing, everything, and one programmer in Romania who was helping me with some database stuff. Now we have a team of 15 people. We have uh, people dedicated to sales, customer success, tier two programming. Uh, We have other people who are dedicated towards technical project management, um, a dedicated project manager, a dedicated account manager. We have somebody who's focused on HR, and uh, kind of operations and also billing and accounts payable and um, work with an accountant. We have, um, yeah, a big team of people that, I mean, you kind of have to have enough people to do things at scale and you have to really hire for talent. And I really feel like there's been a few key hires at the company that has really helped grow the business faster than I could do on myself. Because a lot of people are like, you know what, I'm just going to do it. It's faster for me to do it. And I think that's a stage that every entrepreneur has to go through and realize that you have to step back. One thing that helped me early on was deciding to outsource support. And I thought, I I can't have somebody from the Philippines doing support. I should be the one doing support because I'm the the face of the company. But I tell you what, it it was a big energy drain for me to get a couple of phone calls during the day. I talked to them for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. We'd chit chat for a while, whatever, nice and friendly. And I'd be like, man, I'm exhausted. I'm going to go out. You know, I was working at home. I'm going to go upstairs and get a glass of water, or go for a walk or whatever, because I just accomplished something kind of good, satisfying for the clients. But that took me away from doing sales. It wasn't until I was working with another guy, actually a guy I went to grad school with, and he was working for me part-time because he was recovering from the financial crisis and had lost his job. So he was working with me part-time. He's a good friend of mine. He's like, dude, you got you to gotta start hiring some people for support. So I did. And I thought, okay, this is helping out. And then I finally let go full-time so other people would answer all the tickets. I only jump in if it's something super urgent or something kind of really needs my attention. But... Um, it's been a big time saver because the company is big enough that I can afford to have enough people doing support that I shouldn't be dedicated only on doing support. I should be dedicated on the, the big stuff, the big strategy, the sales and stuff like that. Eventually, I wanted to get to the point where I have somebody else doing sales for me and um, you know, kind of grow up the company to be more sophisticated by having job boxes, dedicated people for each job box within the company. What has like the benefit of staying location independent and running the company in that matter? Like, what has the benefit of that been? Like, what would you tell people who are thinking about building a location-independent business? By running a location-independent business, you find out that you have to be a good manager without being shoulder-to-shoulder or arm's length away from somebody. You have to be able to be time-efficient and motivated to show up and work even though you're not physically going to an office. Um, A lot of times when you work for a corporation, you have to show up. Eight o'clock in the morning, you punch in, you punch out at four or five o'clock in the afternoon. 
you're there working because you're with 50 other people who are also working. You're kind of in the team mode. You're more of a loner when you're doing it remotely. And there is like a team environment if you're in a co-working facility. So you feel like, okay, these guys are in meetings. These guys, you know, we, we got we to gotta work. Even though you're working on different projects for different companies. But I, I feel like I'm probably a better manager now than I probably would have been working in a real office. Because I'm working with people from diverse talents, um, cultural differences, maybe some language differences, uh, geographic differences, and we have to do things efficiently. So in other words, we have to be a little bit more clear. At least I felt that way early on, to be very clear with instructions, uh, creating SOPs, and then now we really rely on Slack. But I find out that when we hire people, we want to hire people that can work well remotely. Even if they don't have the best technical skills, it doesn't matter. They have to have the best human skills. We're looking for people who um, are the glue to hold us all together. And there's a How really... do you find that out? Like, How do you test that if they are good like remote workers? I think it's a lot of gut, gut feel. Um, there's a really good book called Good to Great. And it, it, it's a book that was given to me when I worked in the corporate world. And it uses this uh, idea that you find the right people and you put them on the bus and then you figure out where you're going to drive to. And then after a while, you find the right people and put them in the right seats on the bus. So as long as you find really good people, you'll know you'll figure out which seat to put them in. And a lot of it is gut feel. So one, one way we do it, another good book is called Top Grading. So I was referred to this book a couple of years ago by another guy on the Entrepreneurial Network. And he, he used it successfully in his company. And top grading is essentially looking at somebody who has worked at other companies. So you're not really taking a chance on somebody who's just fresh out of school. You're looking at somebody who has had other jobs. And you're kind of looking for people who have worked in a job and has had success. And they've probably gone in higher roles and responsibilities over time. And if they have switched companies, it's, a, it's for another job a higher paid position, a higher um, opportunity versus you find people who will work as like a managing director and then they'll work, you know, at Starbucks for a while or whatever. Not anything's wrong with that, but then they work for another company and they're VP of a small company and then they work for a big company and they're just like a middle-level manager. Like you don't see a career path or a progression with those people. So when I look at people, I'm looking for that type of career path. But then I'm also looking for a personality. As a matter of fact, when we post jobs online, I have uh, probably 10 or 15 required fields that they have to fill out. And the last one is an optional field. And it's something to the effect of, this is optional now, but here's where you can shine. Please post a video of you, um, something that makes you different or what what you think is unique about yourself. And we use a software called useloom.com. And it's free for anybody. They just do a little video. So when I have all these people apply for a position, I only look at the optional column and I click on every video and I'll watch, watch it with somebody else in the company and we'll just grade that person on a scale of one to 10. And then those people who score the highest, who we think are the best, will then actually invite them for an interview. And then... So you don't even look at the people who don't post the video? Nope. Don't even look. I've actually had somebody who uh, seemed very highly qualified, but they didn't do a video. And I said, hey, you know, you should do a video if you're interested. And they're like, oh, I have a Linux. It doesn't work on my computer. I'm really worried about security. Or I don't know what you're going to do with the video. Like, come on. If you can't yeah. trust us that much, we don't need to go any further. I actually had another person who 
he had um we went to the same university i didn't know him but he was there at the same time i was and he worked in the chancellor's office after i had left like i saw his resume and everything and i said hey you want to do a video too he's like hey i just thought we'd get on a call and chat the thing is he didn't realize i'm getting 50 people who are applying for this job I don't have time to call in each one. I know he his strategy was just to, hey, let's have this friendly chat. We all went to the same school. We worked in the same office. We know the same people. You got to follow the, the structure. Mm-hmm. I don't want people to, to veer off the road. And another thing that happens that we do is we have group interviews. And I've been uh, found some people who are like, I call them the Michael Jordan and the Scottie Pippen of the town web team because... One person was hired before the other person, and we needed to hire another person to match up with them to work with clients. And I, you know, even though this other person had been in the company for a, a, just a short time, I said, I want you in on these interviews. And I would ask, like, what do you think of this person? She's like, mm, he's good. Mm, I don't know. What do you think of this person? I don't know. They seemed a little nervous. It, like, it wasn't like a hell yes moment for them. And then we interviewed the person we ended up hiring, and I said, what do you think? And she's like, oh, my gosh, I think she's the one. Like, you can feel that vibe. Mm-hmm. You just feel that. And we're doing, a, we're doing a group interview here. So we're all just doing it remotely on video. And um, one person really shined through. And it's like, this is the hire. And, and together they are the dynamic duo and have really transformed the company of what we're doing because they just work on the projects with a high energy. The customers are happy with it. They're doing the projects efficiently. And I know that this is what I need to do if I want to grow the company more to hire people just like that, people who work well with each other. What would you tell to the Dustin who is just getting started, you know, 10 years ago, you know, in building the business? Like what what sort of what would be the one lesson or one thing that you would tell that Dustin as he's getting started with the business? So if I were to go back into my own business 12 years ago, what would I do differently knowing what I know now? Basically, yeah. (laughs) I would spend bucket loads of money on marketing because, okay, so everybody's like, oh, you got to do LinkedIn. You got to scrape LinkedIn. You got to do, you know, this and that and Facebook ads and Google ads. It doesn't work for this. Um, We're doing direct mail and it works. It works wonders. Mm -hmm. And um, this is the part I might want to have you take out of the the podcast. (laughs) Because this is the dirty little secret where <laughs> we're contacting people and we get a few percentage of them to actually respond and, and gain interest. Um, it's probably just like Facebook ads, but the customers we're going after read mail. Mm-hmm. It's old school. It seems old fashioned. It's expensive, but it works, at least for us. You know what's funny about that is be- before I got into the online world, I worked for a... <laughs> an aquatic management company. So we would staff lifeguards and take care of all of their, um, you know, like the pool equipment. We did all of that. I spent way too long. I did a career in that. I did seven years Mm. doing that, which is crazy to think about. But the thing that I noticed was, I think this might've been one of my first times actually being introduced to really great marketing was here. I am telling this company, I'm like, 
19. And I'm like, you guys need to be doing Facebook ads. You need to be doing all these like, you know, digital ads. And then this company, this marketing company sends in direct mail box. And inside the box is like a pull buoy and like a little thing. And it was just totally personalized, like, like thing that was saying, Hey, here's a gift from us. And I'm pretty sure they hired that marketing company. And I was just like, hold on. Like my whole worldview was shattered. I was like, I thought the answer was Facebook ads. And here's this company that was, that wasn't because the upper management of the company that I was working for wasn't a Facebook ads company. Like you said, there are people who opened mail. There are people who responded to that. And I think there's something to knowing the customer's that you're trying to hire, right? Like don't run Facebook ads to people who don't look at Facebook, you know? So I think that's, that's a very interesting advice. There's another guy I know who's in the um, web design industry and this is called a bulky mailer. And I heard that he, he gave a talk several years ago. He might be an interesting guy for you to interview as well. Um, he sends out bottles of hot sauce to potential customers. I think he targets uh, web agencies, so that mm-hmm. they can be the outsourced um, web designer hosting company for them. And he sends out the bottle of hot sauce. And then like a week or two later, somebody actually calls him. It's like, hey, I'm so-and-so from what and what? I'm the one that sent you the hot sauce. Like, oh, how's it going? I got that. I was wondering what that was. For. You know, it opens the door. <laughs> it costs several bucks to, to, to buy it and to send it off. But it, 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 it's just a warm. It, it's not, no longer a cold call. It's now a warm call. And then, you know, you talk about what you can help them with and you got them on the phone for like maybe five, 10 minutes. So so he doesn't even say anything with the hot sauce. So he doesn't say like, hey, this is from so-and-so. I do so-and-so. He just sends them the hot sauce. I think it has like maybe the name of the company or something with a little okay. note, like I'm going to call you in a week or two. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's kind of there just to to leave it like, hmm, I got something. This is kind of strange. I wonder who it's from. Sure. And then when Love the guy that. calls and say, I'm the guy with the hot sauce, like, oh, God, it's clever. I haven't quite done that. I mean, this is a logistical challenge. So, but they apparently were able to white label or get a whole bunch of white uh, hot sauce Mm. and, um, you know, the tubes for packaging and they have somebody in-house that that mails them off. So I I think it's- I love that. Well, Dustin, thank you so much for coming by. Um, I really appreciate, you know, you taking the time and and chatting with me. Um, If people are interested and they want to get in touch with you or find out more um, about TownWeb, where can they find you on the internet? They could probably just send me a thing on uh, Facebook. I'm easy to find. There's a couple other doppelgangers, but uh, I'm a little bit easier to find maybe than they are. Okay. All right, man. Well, thank you so much again and um, best of luck, man. Okay. Yeah, thanks so much.